Almighty and merciful God, it's only by your gift that your faithful people offer you true and laudable service. Grant that we may run without stumbling to obtain your heavenly promises. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. That's the collect appointed for today, Sunday, October the 30th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. I appreciate it. I hope it's a a glorious Sunday for you. I hope you had a a good time of worship this morning, or if you've listened to this before that, I hope you have a a blessed time, spirit-filled worship later this morning. So at any rate, we, we had a good week this week, nothing exciting going on. I did call the medical examiner in North Carolina again this week, so we're six and a half months away from Will's death, and we still don't have any answers. They were very, very far behind. They said it, it could be at least nine months um, from the date of death until the results. So, you know, I'll just keep calling and, and seeing what's going on. We, I just, I just want to answer, right? I mean, I want to know what happened. Uh so anyway, this that that's just one little housekeeping thing. But the, for this week, we had we had a good week. We went over to the arboretum, which we do pretty frequently. Actually, we we do a lot of walking out there, and so we went over there one day this week and and decided I wanted to go up and take a look at the bonsai trees, uh, the little dwarfed trees that um, that have an exhibit at the arboretum. It's a permanent exhibit, but it closes in the winter time because they're fragile in that way. So they move the bonsai inside during the winter. But one of the things I didn't count on, didn't even expect was, is that the bonsai are, are just like any other tree. They go through the same life cycle. And so they have, uh, the leaves were changing on the trees. If you go to my Facebook page, my personal Facebook page, it's John Green uh, with an E on the end, then you can see the pictures of the bonsai that we that I took that day. We also had a great trip uh, up to upper, what used to be referred to as Upper East Tennessee, and now it's mostly called Northeast Tennessee, uh, uh, to Unicoi County, which is just up over the North Carolina line into Tennessee. And, and so went up there and, and had a great hike on, I think it was Tuesday of this week. Um, there's some pictures I posted there as well um, from that trip. And one of the things that I mentioned is, is that there, there's like 12 crossings of the creek on the on the hike you're just basically hiking alongside the creek and so sometimes you go back and forth across it um just to make the trail something you can actually do (laughs) so we did that and uh, i made it through the first 10 crossings without even getting my feet wet because you could step on the rocks and all that well on the 11th crossing I stepped on a rock that was covered with moss, and when I did, I, I did what I couldn't possibly do if I intended to, which is a perfect, like, n- no bent knees, no nothing, just arms out, face plant, right into, well, six inches of water. So um, Suzanne immediately asked, um, how you doing? Are you okay? I said, yep. And so then she knew that was the cue for both of us are going to laugh at that because it had to be one of the funniest looking things. Um, ever. Like I said, I couldn't have done it. If there was a video of it, you would never have believed that it wasn't planned. But um, nonetheless, it it was fine because it was 70 degrees that day. And so it was not even unpleasant to be wet in the creek that way. And then we had another good day yesterday. We went up to Greene County, Tennessee, which is near Greenville, Tennessee, and did some hiking there. Ate at a a hardware store, actually. Uh, It's a little cafe 
cafe, I guess, maybe what you call it, next to, it's, it's part of the building that the hardware store's in. So anyway, it was good. We had run into some women from Greenville on Tuesday up at Higgins Creek, and um, they told us about this place. And so they told us about two places, actually, and the first place was so crowded that it was unbelievable, and it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, and so we, we didn't stay there, but we did find a really great Mennonite grocery up there. Uh, it's next to a place called the Farmer's Daughter. That was the place that was so crowded. The place we ate was called the Gathering Place. It's like there's a gas station, a hardware store in this place. Um, and, and it was good. We had a good time, and then, but the hike was not very good. It was not a very good trail, to be honest with you. It's uh, very, it, it's, it, it's narrow. I mean, there were some places where only one foot, you couldn't, you couldn't stand with both feet side by side on the trail. And every time that was true, it was on the side of a, a, a pretty steep slope going down. So it, it, and it was covered with leaves and the trail was very poorly maintained as well. A lot of erosion there. They'd obviously had a lot of storms. It again was on a creek called Painted Creek. So anyway, we had a good week. Um, I hope, I hope you all are doing well. We had dinner with our friends, Steve and Alyssa Green, um, on Friday night and had a great time with them. Got to see their baby Axel and that, and it's exciting always when to see, to meet a baby like that. For me, at least it is. So especially when, when you got people that you really love. So it was great. Uh, so anyway, had a good week, and so today, we, we, let's kick off and move forward with um, the, the theme of the day, basically, it was, it's Reformation Sunday, and I'm, but I'm not going to talk about the Reformation, right? So I'm not going to bother doing that today. If, if that's what you wanted, then, well, I'm sorry. Um, so the, the, the theme of the day can be encapsulated in the Psalm of the day, which is the first seven verses of Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there's no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That is the place we need to be, right? I mean, so it's great to say my transgression is forgiven, my sin is covered, the, the Lord doesn't count any iniquity against me. That's a wonderful thing. But, but the psalmist says, when I was silent about my sins, I was in misery, your hand was heavy upon me, and then I acknowledged my sin to you and didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It's important business. That's one of the things that, that I appreciate most about Anglican worship, frankly, is, is that we as a congregation come together and confess our sins, and we do that before we declare the peace with one another and before we celebrate the peace that's been established with God in the Eucharistic, the communion meal. But we can't get there unless we do two important, well, three really important things prior to receiving communion. We have to confess our faith, and so we as a congregation confess our faith in the words of one of the creeds of the church, typically the Nicene Creed, which is the longer one than the Apostles' Creed. But it's important, I believe, for the community together to confess what they believe. I believe that's a really important thing because then we're all one 
as we come to the table. We believe the same things, or at least proclaim that we believe those same things, and then we confess our sins before the Lord. So we come cleanly before the one whom we have confessed, and then we establish that peace with one another. And the point of the peace is to say, if there's something that interpersonally that needs to be dealt with, this is a good time to do it. Otherwise, we celebrate a peace that exists, and then we have the meal that celebrates the peace we have with God in the bread and the wine. So that that's important business, and it's important, and it always has been. When you read this passage from Isaiah today, which is Isaiah 1, verses 10 to 18, God it couldn't be any clearer about what he thinks of the people. Listen to this. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He's not speaking to the rulers of Sodom. Sodom's long gone. It was gone in Genesis. He's speaking to the leaders of the Jews. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. That's what I see. You look like Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So he has rulers of Sodom, people of Gomorrah. He's speaking to his people, his own people. He could be speaking to America today to the extent that we consider ourselves any kind of a Christian country. He says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. I created all those things. I gave them to you so that so that I gave the sacrificial system to you so that you could deal with sin. But but you're giving me a multitude of these things. You're not feeling sorrow for sin because you're coming and doing this sort of exchange between I, I can go on sinning so long as I can afford to go on sinning. And I think we're in a place where there's a reckoning that's happening all across the world right now with the, with the economic situation in the world. I think we're in a place where we can no longer afford this. And hopefully it's going to call us to revival. But revival begins with another R word, and that's repentance. And so that's exactly what God has in mind here. He says, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you the trampling of my courts? Who required that? No, you should come in reverence and awe and fear. Bring no more vain offerings. Lice, incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. He says those two, those two things don't go together. You're, you've become religious. I didn't want religion. I wanted relationship. That's exactly right. We, we, in order to get revival, we need repentance. And repentance is a move from religion to relationship. And so here, what they've done is sort of this, this barter exchange. They've treated the sacrificial system as though God, God is bartering with them. I'll give you forgiveness if you give me goats and bulls and lambs and all that kind of stuff. And, and that's not what God intended. He intended them to be a people who declare in their lives His glory. They're to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. And Peter says, that's who we are. A holy nation, a kingdom of priests, as Christians. And, and here, God's furious. They're doing all the religious stuff, but they're treating it as though he were not a God at all, that he were not real, that he were not personal, that he were not living. He says, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. He's the one who put them in place, but the way they're keeping them without repentance and only as religion is displeasing to him. His soul hates it. It's funny to hear God speak of having a soul. 
right? I mean, that's not the way we think of God. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. They are a, the, 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 the religious activities of his people, he says, have become a burden to him that he's weary of, bear, of bearing. When you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Because when you spread out your hands should be worship, but that's not what you're actually giving me. You're treating this like it's some sort of uh, a, 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 a bribe that you're giving to me. He says, even though you make many prayers, I won't listen. Your hands are full of blood. And, and we could say that in America right now, sadly, that, that we as a nation, our hands could be considered to be full of blood. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. So if you want to know how to win my favor, it has nothing to do with those sacrificial animals that you keep bringing to me. No, I I want a people. I want a people. A people who will display my glory to the world. A people that I can bless because they're taking me seriously. They're not acting like the other nations. They have um, different ethics and morals, different values, something that's transcendent. They're not just doing things for sordid gain. No, you have a higher purpose and a higher organizing principle than that. But that's not what you want. What you want is prosperity. And you seek to appease me by bringing these gifts. I tell you what I actually want is not those things. I'm tired of them. I'm sick to death of them, he says. No, what I want you to do is, is cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. He says, do those things. Don't do the stuff you're doing. Do those things. And then, then you're a nation that I can bless it's because you're being my people and showing the world what it looks like to live under my rule. And so God said, I'm not interested in your religious observances. If that's all you have to give me, stay home. Stay home. Because the thing you really need to do is live differently. Become the kind of people who other people can look at and say there's something different about those people. Not just in the way they act and the way they talk, but in the way that they are and the values that they possess. The thing that, that can be seen as they have a different goal and aim in mind than the rest of the world does. And he says when, when people see that, then they'll see that that's what I want. And they'll know it because I'm favoring you and I'm blessing you. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They are red like crimson. They shall become like wool. It's a promise God's making them. If you'll do these things, everything will be good. But he's also going to tell Isaiah, but they're not going to listen. They're not going to change. They're not going to believe you. Because they've got other voices out there that are telling them, no, everything's good. And the proof of that is we have prosperity. We have all this other stuff. God must favor us and bless us. He's not upset with us. You know, it's it's hard to be a prophet, just like it's hard to have gifts of discernment. When, When you know things that everybody else thinks is wonderful, but there's this check in your spirit that says, you know, it's not actually. 
it looks okay, but it's not okay. And to be the guy that stands outside and says that the sky is actually falling, it may not look like that, but it is. It's not a pleasant place to be, right? Because you're alone. <laughs> and you're standing out there and you're saying this thing. You're like, well, Noah, for instance, is a perfect example of that. But but God just calls us to repentance, and, and that's all he calls us to. If my people who are called by my name will turn from their wicked ways, then I'll bless them, right? I mean, that's Chronicles 7.14. That, that's who we're supposed to be. We see that today in the gospel, and we see the effect of it. And, and so what God needed, as I said in Isaiah, was a people who would take him seriously, who would become like him, whose character would reflect the values of God and the intentions and the ideals of God. That, and, and then that would then draw the attention of the world. And then the world would say, well, what is different about them? It's their God. He's real. <laughs> he loves them. They're his treasured possession. So it will change the world when people start to come to repentance. When the church comes to repentance, that's when revival actually happens. That's when revival happens. It's studied again and again and again. The characteristics of revival is God's people move from being lukewarm to being set on fire. And then the world takes notice, and it wants what they have. You see that right here? Because it, it, it will literally change the world. If we pray for our leaders, then, then if, if, if God gets hold of them and changes them and they become people of God, then life is better. It's better all the way around. In, in the gospel today, you, what you see is the short-sightedness of people. And how, but, but how one man's repentance, one man, can change an entire society. He, Jesus, entered Jericho, this is Luke 19, verses 1 to 10, and was passing through. He was just going through Jericho. He wasn't stopping there. He was passing through. And that's, that's an intentional thing Luke's trying to tell us. He was just going through Jericho. We know that he heals blind Bartimaeus there because he's the one crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And, and so that, that happens in Jericho. But that's, when, you know, a two-second thing. And, and so he's passing through Jericho. Where is he passing through to go? He's going to Jerusalem to meet his ultimate fate. So he's entered Jericho, and he's passing through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, oddly enough, means pure or clean. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. A chief tax collector means that, that he owned the franchise for tax collection in the region. And it means that he would have had other tax collectors under him. And, I, and I've explained this before, but I'll explain it again because it always bears repeating. And that is that the way a tax system worked is, is this, that, that the, um, the emperor, the Caesar, took bids on the, the collection efforts. He farmed that out to independent contractors, and those independent contractors would then come and put a bid and say, okay, for this region, this is what I think the tax revenues to the crown should be. And so they would choose the highest bidder among those. Well, then it was incumbent. They had to pay it up front, actually. So, okay, you think that's what it's worth? Give me the money. Well, now where's their profit, right? So their profit is in collecting more than that. And Rome didn't care because it's, the crown is not being blamed for this. It's No, it's, it's who? It's the tax collector. 
It's up to him. So Rome didn't set the tax rates directly. They set them indirectly by doing this. And it was not just an income tax. It was also a tax on assets. It was also a tax on things coming in and out of your region. So that's exactly what's going on here. And so that's who Zacchaeus is. Zacchaeus was rich, we're told, because he's a chief tax collector. And the way you get rich is to collect more and more and more and more and more and more. So it's overvaluing things. It's basically just cheating people. He was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he couldn't because he was small in stature. It's an odd little story, to be honest with you. You got this little bitty guy who's a tax collector, and he wants to see who Jesus was, but he couldn't see because of the crowd. So what does he do? He runs on ahead and climbs up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Interesting, right? Zacchaeus wants to see who Jesus is. Jesus calls him by name from the tree. He wants to see who Jesus is, but Jesus knows him. Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Well, that's not what he was doing. He didn't have to stay there. He was passing through. His intention was not to stay there, but, but well, he must. There's something truly important that's going to d- d- detain Jesus in that place. I must stay at your house today. So he hurried. He, Zacchaeus, hurried, like Jesus said, and came down. What did Jesus say? Hurry and come down. So Zacchaeus hurried and came down. And he received him joyfully. What an unusual honor given to this guy. The guy that he's usually detested. Now, this guy that we think might be the Messiah, might be the incarnate son of David, has got to go stay at a tax collector's house. Of all the people he could have chosen in this town, he's going to Zacchaeus' house? Does he have any discernment at all? I mean, nobody would have been happy about this, and we know it, because when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone to the guest of a man who is a sinner. He's a horrible guy. Can you believe it? Does he know anything? He can't possibly be the Messiah if he's going to go hang out with Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus stood, they were at the house at this point, and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Well, he didn't have to do that. If he's defrauded somebody, all he has to do is make restitution. Restitution is making somebody whole. And fourfold is, well, four times whole. (laughs) So Zacchaeus, what is he doing? He's confessing that he has ill-gotten gain. That's the reason he's willing to give half his goods to the poor. He's acting like God just put a tax on him, a 50% tax, and he's going to give it to the poor. Maybe he'd heard the story about Jesus telling the rich young ruler he had to sell everything he had and give it to the poor, and so he decides to get in front of that train and say half of that. How about that? No, I'm kidding. But, But that's what he does. I give half of everything I have to the poor. You ready to do that? I'm not. I'm not. You know, it's just that true. It would be, I could do it, but it would be very difficult. But Zacchaeus, in the presence of the living God, isn't playing religious games. No, because he's offering to do more than he's required to do under the law. 
He's going to give half of what he has to the poor and restore to anybody he's defrauded fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So salvation's here because he's the son of Abraham. Remember, Jesus has said that the lost that he has come to seek and save are the children of Israel. He's been very clear with that. That's his mission, is to bring those people into the fold, back into the fold, in some cases. And Zacchaeus would have been one of those who had had to come back into the fold. And we know that because Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Today is the important day. Salvation has come here. Why? Because he repented of his sin. He, he, he confessed in this, but he also repented. Because there's two different things at work there. Repentance is, is more than just confession. It's, it's turning from. So it's seeing things God's way and then turning away from those things. The, the, there, there's a, sort of a four-step process within Judaism for uh, repentance. The word is tshuva, T-E-S-H-U-V-A in English. So step one is regret. You realize the extent of the damage and you feel sincere regret. Two is cessation, immediately stopping the harmful action. Three is confession, articulate the mistake and ask for forgiveness. And step four is resolution, make a firm commitment not to repeat it in the future. And so it it means going to the person you've sinned against and confessing that sin to them and and showing true um, regret in that. It's, it's a, a, a very important thing in our, in our world to do that very thing. We, we need to stop doing this thing, and we need to turn from that. But, but we also, whenever we've sinned against somebody personally, then what we have to do is we have to go and make that right with them, and that's what, exactly what Zacchaeus says he's going to do. He recognizes that at some level he's responsible for the impoverishment of the people under him. But as I've said before, the beautiful and incredible thing about this is, is that, that he's going to change life for the people of Jericho, the people that grumbled about him, about Jesus going to his house, their lives are about to change because Zacchaeus got, not religion, but relationship. Zacchaeus got saved. And when Zacchaeus got saved, it changed the lives of everybody who were in that region because he's an honest tax collector now. That's going to make everybody's lives better. One man's repentance can mean an enormous difference in all the world around him. And that could apply to us, but it could also apply to those people who are outside the covenant now. And so what we need to do is if we're working for unrighteous people, if we are uh, around unrighteous people, who, um, then, then we should pray for those people. We should be praying for them every day because that would change other people's lives. There's a huge trickle-down effect when somebody changes their lives, when they become a new creation. It makes their family better. It makes their friendships better. It makes their work environment better. It makes everything better. So we should absolutely be praying for those in authority all the time. Because in that we'll find our peace and we'll find our own prosperity. And and we need to be clear about our own repentance as well. We need to deal with sin daily. Probably way more than that, actually. And the problem is, is that, that once you begin to do that, then you become aware of other sins in your life. You begin to take notice of, of all kinds of other things once you become aware of those sins and become aware of their effect 
on you and on other people, then then there's just you begin to see and, and you can despair at some level. But Jesus on the cross said, don't despair. No, come to me and you can have forgiveness and be restored. You can never, once you begin to confess on a regular basis, you, you can never go back to believing that you're a really good person. No, you're a sinner saved by grace. You're God's treasured possession, too. But, but Jesus says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will refresh you. He invites you to the cross. He invites you to come to him, the living God, the resurrected Christ. And he'll fill you with his Holy Spirit, and from you will flow rivers of living water. You'll be a new creation, and that, that new creation affects everybody. It affects everybody around us. But, but we're called to continually examine ourselves. And if we spend a lot of time examining ourselves, then we can begin to pray for other people better anyway because we're no longer as, as concerned about criticizing them or gossiping about them. We're more concerned with, well, who we are and who we're not. In the... Uh, epistle today it's it's second thessalonians 1 1 to 4 and then verses 11 to 12 um paul is 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 writing to this church that's in the midst of a very difficult situation they were heavily persecuted right from the start it was a difficult place for paul to do ministry and he went there i believe for for a very simple reason and that is it was one of the wealthiest places in the region it's still today it's the second biggest um city in um in greece but it's it's an odd place because it's always been dominated by jews of the diaspora I mean, until 1913, they were the majority in Thessalonica. And sometimes it's called Salonica, by the way, but not in the, in the scriptures, but today it's, it's referred to frequently as Salonica. It, became, it came into Greece um, after 1913, actually, and then other Greeks began to move there and other people began to move there. Some, some, is, uh, some people who had converted to Islam moved there, um, and, and so they, they got um, displaced simply because the place grew so much. And, and so after 1913, they were no longer the majority. Until then, they were like 49%, I think, in 1913 or 1920, one or the other. But then what happened was is that they began, to, they began not to decline as numerically. They began to decline as a representation of the entire population, a proportion of the entire population, simply because the population grew so much. And then something completely different changed in 1943. The Nazis came in and occupied the place. And they went from being 50,000 Jews in Thessalonica to 1,000 today because of what the Nazis did. So at any rate, Paul goes into a situation that is, that is he goes to, to there because it's an important place. It's a wealthy port city. But more than that, there's a huge Jewish population in Thessalonica. Well, that's good to make converts because it's easier to preach the gospel who have basic familiarity with what a Messiah is. And so it's easier in some ways to preach the gospel there, but it's difficult to preach the gospel there as well for that very reason because Jesus doesn't fit the expectations. And so he goes there and he finds opposition. And they stir up the rabble of the streets even to come against him there. And then they don't just leave that there. They follow him. Those same group of people follow him and persecute him in other places. And so that church is a, is a minority in a, in a majority Jewish place. I mean, it, it was kind of seen as a second Jerusalem in some ways like Babylonia was, because so many Jews stayed in Babylon after the, the some returned under Ezra and Nehemiah. A majority actually stayed up there. 
formed their own communities where they were actually the majority, and the same thing has happened here in Thessalonica. And so Paul's writing to a church that, that it's in a very minority situation, and not only their minority, they're persecuted minority. They're a, a deeply unappreciated minority in that place because they stand in a way a, as a witness to the truth in the same way sort of that, that the Jews hated the Samaritans because they claimed to be the true Israel. Now here in this place, in Thessalonica, there's a Christian church that kind of serves the same purpose as the Samaritans serve to the Jews in Jerusalem. They can be the people that, that claim to be the true Israel, and, and we can hate them and persecute them because we have power. So that, you know, typically that's not the case for Jewish people. They, they tend to be the persecuted minority, but here they were the persecuting minority or majority, I mean. And so the Christian church is struggling under persecution there. It's a difficult situation in which to be a Christian. We may be getting ready to find out that ourselves. Um, so Paul writes, he, he writes for himself and his two others, Savannah and Timothy. So he lists all three of them, and, and we're writing to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. I see great things in you. I see your faith growing, and I see your love for one another growing. And so you're loving God, that's your faith growing and your love in one another. You're keeping the first and great commandment and the second one that's like unto it. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you. So we hear these things about you. We see these things about you. But, but then we don't just leave it at that. And we're not just thankful for that. In fact, we boast about you in the churches of God because we want other people to be like you. Why? For your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. So we tell other people about you and hold you up as an example. And, and, well, I can give you a lot of examples of people that I've known in my own life that I could hold up as examples, but I, I wouldn't hold them up personally because it would embarrass them because they would then come out and say, John, I'm not that. What you see is, is actually, no. No, let me tell you who I really am. You know? and, and they would be way too humble for me to say anything like that. But, but I've known people and ministered to and with people who, who I respect greatly and who I tell you about from time to time without ever telling you their names. People of great generosity. People who have, who have done really, really well in life, who have made a lot of money, but who then turn around and say, I, I recognize that everything I have is a gift from God, and so I'm willing to give. Not just till it hurts, but till God tells me to stop. And so I've known those people. I've known people who've extended themselves in, in a variety of ways on behalf of other people and whose, whose faith I see all the time, who I know trust God with all their heart and love God with all their heart. And so I can tell you about them, and that's what Paul says, that I do that all the time with y'all. We boast about you in the churches of God. We hold you up as an example. We want all Christians to be like you guys are. And he said, to this end, we also always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and fulfill every resolve you have for good and every work of faith by his power. Why? So that you'll be made great? No, so that the time, the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's always growth that's still possible in us. That's the reason that God didn't just let Abraham fade off. And die. No, he tested him. 
and told him to take his son, his only son, the one he loves, and take him up to the mountain, that he would show him and sacrifice him there. And so we've got to always be prepared for God to use us and test us so that we can grow in our faith and our love for him as well. We can know things about him we couldn't know without that faith being tested. But what he wants us to do, first and foremost, is to keep short accounts, to consciously and constantly examine our lives and confess our sins and repent of those sins in order that our worship and our sacrifices would be acceptable to him and pleasing in his sight. And then, then, we're truly and faithfully bearing his name to the world. They see us not as hypocrites, but as humble people who love the Lord our God, who appreciate the sacrifice of his son, and who worship him, and whose values are kingdom values, not earthly values. He is our treasured possession, as we are his and then the world can see it. And then they see also the love we have for one another, which is to say, to say that I recognize in you that you are God's treasured possession, and therefore I can't think any less of you than that. It's meant to change our lives. It's meant to make us a people who are unique in the world in order that God might be seen in us and in our fellowship one with another. In the name of the Lord, Jesus, amen.